Unlikely Pilgrims, a podcast hosted by historians Dan Spanger and Mark Draper, where we discuss issues facing the church today in the area of politics, culture, education, the arts, from a historical bent to help the citizens of the City of God negotiate life in the City of Man, where we seek to create a safe space to have difficult conversations. If you like what you hear, you can follow us and read our blog at unlikelypilgrims.com. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, and you can also email us at unlikelypilgrims at gmail.com. Dr. Spanger. Yeah, Dr. Spanger. Um, we are moving into a new phase of our yeah. conversation as to what's wrong with the church. <laughs> or, you mean sorry. we haven't finished that? No, division. Oh, division, division. What's, what's wrong, wrong with the church, church could be a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> Uh, and as church historians, it's a 2,000-year Yeah, that's right. We're not just looking at 10 years. No. Um, but we, we've we done some some creative, I think, some creative stuff. We've tried to unpack Christian nationalism, yeah. and Trumpism, all that fun stuff. But now we want to bring on some guests. Yeah. And so we want to kind of prep our listeners for, okay, now it's not just Dr. Spanner right. and Dr. Draper talking. So right. um, we want to create this space. Uh, we're going to bring on three guests. Uh, two, two of our guests are African-American. Um, one is a gentleman who's recently, recently written a book, and so they'll, they'll all come on. They're going to have slightly different perspectives on these issues of race, right. the, the, the problems of race in the church, Christian nationalism in the church. Right. Um, so, but can you tell our listeners why if they disagree, they shouldn't turn yeah, off? Yeah, don't turn off. Well, and I, I think, Dr. Draper, you've done a lot of work on this with our listeners, at least in your writing, and is we're trying to create some opportunities just to to hear people out, to listen. And so we're, we're not bringing guests on that agree with us on either side. We're trying to bring people on who are willing to share their opinion in a godly way with Christian people to say, here's what I seriously believe. Mark and I don't agree with everything that we've engaged. We don't agree with everything that we've heard from our, from our interviewees or will hear. Um, but we are trying to create this opportunity for them to be able to speak freely and say, no, here's how you should look at it. And then we're going to ask probing questions to try to get a better sense of what they're saying. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And it's so, I think it's so important right now because we live in this place yeah. where uh, the algorithms just give you what you like <laughs> on social media. Um, and in fact, I actually had a, had a conversation with a friend one time and I said, you know, based on the algorithms, we shouldn't be Facebook friends. <laughs> That's right. Right? Yeah, we, right. We had to go outside the algorithm to make that work. Right. And, and had to, has to kind of resist the algorithm to stay friends. Yeah, right. Uh, so this is an algorithm-free zone. It's an algorithm-free zone. Gotcha. Exactly. Unless an algorithm brought you to us. <laughs> then, then that was a blessed algorithm. Providence. Right. Yes, yes. So, uh, but that's, we, we lack that space. We lack yeah. that space to... Um, to agree, to disagree, to wrestle, to challenge, and that's what we really want to do with yeah. some of these. So, uh, so our first guest is going to be Hank Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, great story. Um, amazing story. Amazing story, yeah. right? African American. Uh, African. African. Then African American. Yeah. So, yeah. story of a family goes to Liberia mm. uh, after the after the Civil War, but his family, when he's a kid, comes back to America. Right. Uh, so he's. He's, he's has both experiences, and both of those are going to shape his views. Right. Uh, and so we're, we, I thought we had a really good conversation with him, and we're kind of looking forward to um, hearing what our, what our listeners think about that conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah and, and the experience is not only of being African, where he was at the upper crust of society, yeah. 
in a, as part of the royal family and then having to come here and be at the bottom end of Philadelphia society, yeah. that just gave him a whole perspective. And, um, and he sees Europe and American society then through, the, through a bit of that lens, which he I does. think is really a perspective that you and I just don't have. No, no. And also the experience of what African-Americans who did take the trip back to Africa and Liberia experienced right. and how they that's engaged right, that's right. with with people who were already in Africa, and it, it, it's it's a it's a great story. Yeah, it is it's a great, great story. story. So, uh, so great. That, that is good. That yeah. will that will be our next uh, piece. Yeah, and I look forward to that. Well, Doctor Spanger, uh, today we have a guest. All right. Uh, on unlikely pilgrims, uh, not Augustinian though. So we'll mm-hmm. have to touch. Mm-hmm. We'll have to touch very carefully with that. Um, but uh, Hank Johnson, uh, who I've gotten to know through my work at Evangelical Seminary. Um, pastors, uh, a church in Harrisburg, I thought he could help us think through this idea of the divisions in the church. We're going to continue in this conversation. Um, we did a, we got lots of feedback and lots of listens to our mm-hmm. conversation on Christian nationalism and on critical race theory, which says to me, uh, these are important topics and people are processing. Yeah. Uh, and Hank is somebody who I've always appreciated talking to about some of these issues uh, thinking through this, he brings a unique set of um, experiences and perspective uh, culturally and theologically. And so I thought he could help us in this process. So the first thing we want to do is introduce Hank. Uh, Hank, tell us who you are. Get, introduce yourself to, to us and our listeners. Hey, everyone. Um, I guess both good doctors. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> it's a joy and a privilege to be on with you. My name is Hank Johnson. Um, I think just a quick brief introduction. Uh, a lot of my story, I think, is is an unlikely pilgrim journey. Um, I think that that in that way I fit. I think on here. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to be here. I right now serve as a senior pastor at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church in Harrisburg City. Um, I'm married to a beautiful wife, Shell, and have two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess the the quickest introduction for me is I was born into a a family um, that, in one sense, was from you know, slaves in America who went back and helped start Liberia um, and then indigenous Liberian people. So because of that, I grew up in not only a family of politicians, but I think up until 1980, every man in my family was either a farmer or pastor or politician. Um, so I didn't really, I, I know maybe some of you might have reform tendencies, so you might feel like that was already written before me, uh, but those are my three options, right? Um, but then also in my family, I had Christians and Muslims. I had rich and poor. So I feel like in one sense, part of my journey is maybe I didn't see myself as a reconciler or peacemaker, but I feel like God necessarily kind of put me in a family where I had to be um, those things. Uh, due to civil war in my country, um, I left in 1989, which is kind of like my introduction, um, moving from privilege to being um, a refugee and an immigrant in cultures that were different than mine. All of that, I think, plays into my reconciliation journey, which helps me understand the plight of refugees and immigrants, you know, Um, finally make it over to America in 92. And I have this thing where I think I became African-American again, um, because for the first time I lose not only refuge, not only privilege and power. um, and, And to explain some of the power is we were refugees and immigrants, you know. But we would always get one phone call. If you picture a movie, you know, where it's like you get in trouble, you get that one phone call. And we get one phone call. And because of that one phone call, we would literally get swooped out of the refugee camp and go to some former ally or our family friend. Um, and that's important, though, because my refugee experience was not the typical refugees for other people. Right. Um, so I was very privileged kid comes to America. 
Um, and, you know, just looking at the color of my skin, I get put into a learning environment that was just like, oh, he can't possibly be right. He can't possibly be smart. He can't possibly be this, you know? Um, and I moved to a town where there were two black families. Um, I will say Palisades Park, New Jersey is pretty diverse though. I think we had at the time, the second highest Korean American concentration um, in the country, right? Um, but we only had two black families and we were one of them. Um, a couple Latino families sprinkled here and there. Um, so I grew up in that setting where, again, I faced racism, prejudice, and all this is new to me. Mm -hmm. um, when we moved to Philadelphia a couple years later, I'm super excited because I'm like, oh, I'm moving back to Black people. This is my people. This is great. Um, and as I come into that culture, I realized not all of them, but there's a strong minority who are just like, oh, you're African. You go under us. You're the least of these. You go again at the bottom. And so I go through this transition period of really learning that culture and adapting to it. Um, my high school experience was a lot more healthy. Uh, people were understanding my language and culture or my country background and all that. But I will say theologically, um, this reconciling, peacemaking, diversity, um, it always made sense to me. And I always felt like this gap um, bridge builder, maybe uh, standing in the gap. I just didn't have the language for it. When I came to Anabaptism was at Messiah College, um, went to there for actually a business major, um, but came in with a lot of credits. So instead of working hard and graduating in three years, I basically spent an extra year just taking Bible classes, which looking back, apparently God knew what, again, God was doing. So that's a shock, right? God knows what God's doing. So uh, as well, an surprises us anyway. As yeah. an Anabaptist, you're saying there was a providence at play. Just wanted to. <laughs> oh, we Anna, well, see, I'm a distinct Anabaptist. You know, we brethren in Christ, we say we're Anabaptists with a difference. You know, okay, uh, okay. we're Pietists with a difference. We're Wesleyans with a difference. Which all that means is that like we looked at major movements of what God was doing, and we said we like that, 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 that. We don't like that, so we're done with it. You know, so mm -hmm. like, so yeah, so yeah, we definitely would agree with that as brethren in Christ. Um, but I think part of that introduction, though, is that I was just like, oh, so even now when people say what's Anabaptist, you know, the Anabaptists are very humble people. So I, I bring a little bit of um, not humility to them. So what I answer <laughs> that and I say is like, well, everything people really love about Jesus. Yeah, that's who we've always been, you know, so like you guys like this whole believers baptism thing. That's cute. They killed us for it. You know, <laughs> you guys like separation of church and state. Yeah, they killed us for that, too. You know, we <laughs> Let's, oh, go, let's go into this, Hank. Yeah, um, that's you, you, that, yeah, so I think for our listeners, too, that what's particular if we're talking about race and stuff, mm. historically, Liberia is an important part of this story of American and race because Liberia is founded in the early 19th century, mm -hmm. uh, land purchased by Americans to mm -hmm. basically ship off freed slaves because they don't want Black people in America. There's lots of fear of what that would look like. Yeah, so one of the, um, the things that really hit me during this pandemic is I've had a chance to reconnect with family back home, you know, um, and one of the things I just found out is I always assumed that my family was part of that first wave, you know, but one of the new things I found out last spring was that my mom's grandfather, great, -grand my mom's, my grandmother's grandfather uh, was a, a former enslaved person in South Carolina, it's a little town called 96 South Carolina, hmm. um, earned his freedom, fought in the Civil War, um, was trying to live and build a family. And then with the rise of the Southern Confederacy, um, basically was like fearing for his family's life and decided in the 18, probably 80s into early 90s that it's too hard to be black in America. 
which coincidentally in 2020, in the spring and summer of 2020, I was feeling those same feelings. Mm. But here's an ancestor who did it, you know, almost 100 plus years and was just like, this is too much. I got to go. So when American colonization came and says, hey, we're settling in Liberia. This is going great. You should just go. Um, He sold everything, you know, um, packed up his young family got on a boat and shipped to the other side of the world, right? Mm. Um, so no, Liberia is very, very critical. But I think one of the things I learned early from my Liberian history is that, you know, history is written by who wins, but mm. also it's very complex, right? Like, so in one sense, we're Africa's oldest republic. And we would argue with Ethiopia that we're the only republic because we never had a king, you know? Um, <laughs> but at the other sense, though, we kind of just what we saw in the South, we're all products of our environment, right? What we saw in the South is the same caste system we, we brought back home. So you had almost 150 years where eight to 10 families ruled the entire country, but we still called ourselves a democracy, right? <laughs> um, but, but race does play a factor in that because even though we were all black, you know, it's who held the power. And the American Liberians were able to hold the power in many different ways. One, they had the U.S. backing, at least early on. You know, part of the reason these tribes kind of agreed to colonization wasn't because these, you know, pilgrims, if you will, who were coming off the ship were powerful. It's because the U.S. government literally parked the Navy ship, you know, or something in there to show U.S. presence and say, this is who we're backing, you know, because the U.S. was very much um, married to the idea of making Liberia successful, you know. Um, so yeah, anyway, so yeah, so I think even at that early stage, when you look at Liberians, it's very easy to say, oh, they're all African, right? Or they all look the same. But we had the schism and divide among even the indigenous tribes. And we as American Liberians, which is what we called ourselves, um, which is tricky because we almost fell hard for patriarchy mm-hmm. because that you had to maintain your last name, which means you had to have a son. But after two years, mm. there's only so many people getting off the ship. Like you have to intermarry, right? Mm. Um, so even in my culture, there's a lot of power dynamics I was introduced to, which uniquely I think prepared me. You know, politics and power dynamics and crazy relationships prepared me for pastoring. You know, let's, let's go there, Hank. Let's yeah, go. you said something really interesting. You said. Um, my grandfather or my great great grandfather didn't feel comfortable in America in, mm-hmm. in the late 19th century during re- after Reconstruction, yep. right? after the bad deal in 1876. Mm-hmm. And he said, I've kind of felt the same way in 2020. So, what, what I would like to hear is um, one, what were you feeling during mm-hmm. 2020? And uh, tell us about your church. Is, is your church yeah. diverse? I mean, how are you? Because it seems like, you know, as a pastor, you're, you're an African American pastor, you know the history. Mm-hmm. right intellectually you know the history i mean you were mentally gifted yeah so you you get it right <laughs> i that, was i, I like that was, it was that's very important actually yeah that was always <laughs> that was always a, in philly schools like you know when, yeah. when you got that label on you you know that was that? that's why will smith had to move out to, uh, to beverly <laughs> that's hills. the real reason you know right 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 because he got yeah. beat up for that um <laughs> or not beverly hills bel-air bel-air yeah anyway um but Tell us about that. Like, what are you going through when you're watching this? As, yeah. And, and, and also, too, I noticed you identify as an African-American, mm-hmm. right? You, you're not yeah. saying I'm an Africa who's in America. You're, mm-hmm. you're using that label. So help us understand that a little bit. Yeah. So the easiest one is the African-American label. Why identify as that, right? Um, so part of it is historically America had this thing called the one drop rule, yeah. where if you were any Black, you were Black, right? So this isn't just some label I'm picking up, right? And that allowed us as a country to have, you know, some white slave owners 
who would take advantage and abuse women and then these women would have children. And I think we're either the only country or one of the few countries where the children of slave owners would not be like have any rights, like they would be enslaved too. So that's the baseline of, you know, America believes one drop, any black, you're black. The second one I would say for me is that even though my family had kind of taken a hundred years off, because we started coming back to America in the mid 20th century, but even though we had taken hundred years off, you know, when I walked down the street, you know, no one's saying, oh, he's Liberian, so he's good. He's a different kind of black, you know, like, um, and I started experiencing a lot of what African-Americans experience here. So, for example, when I first came in fifth grade, I get put in a classroom for people who struggle with learning um, and, and learning disabilities without any testing, you know, and even though, but like, I just assume because you're black, yeah, you must, yeah, we not, were, you don't belong in the mentally. We're sitting in a meeting. I mean, yeah. So I've tried to give grace to this over the years, right? Um, I had no paperwork because we had, I don't know, a civil war, you know? So like, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't really time to like, can you give me my report card? That would be great, right? Um, but also I think that like, I was coming from Ivory Coast, which is a, a French speaking country, you know? So it's like, I even the paperwork I had from them was just basically like, again, I was a refugee and an immigrant. In right. fact, I came to this country on something called a laissez-passer, um, which if you can do some context clues from Romans lang uh, Roman languages or whatever, it literally means let him pass. Like it wasn't a passport. It was really like a piece of paper with a stamp on it. It'd be like, let him go. Like we're done with him, America, you can have him, right? Wow. So I get it. But what we struggled with is because, and I've learned that it was because my family is used to being in power. Like we knew the system and we're like, oh, just test him. You know, and that was, that was our big push was just like, if he's learning support, he's learning support. We'll support him. But like, you at least have to test them. Yeah. But they weren't willing to do that. Um, but going back, I would say that was very helpful for me because that was my introduction to like, oh, there's people society leaves behind, you know? And I could either sit here and be okay with that or I have to do something, right? Um, I think all that plays into who I am. But now when I talk about identifying as African-American, it's because I went through experiences African-American went through, whether it's the testing thing, whether it's, you know, how I was treated by police growing up, um, whether it's how I'm treated by police now, you know, I am, you know, 37 years old and I went through a period where it was almost five years where every six months I would have some kind of police interaction that wasn't good. And it wasn't because I was breaking any laws. You know, I had one where I was washing clothes in my house and the police went to a call of domestic violence. I wasn't married at the time and they tried to, they wanted to come in. I wouldn't let them in. And at least one officer puts his hand on his gun and is like, are you sure? And I'm like, oh, well, I wasn't sure before, but now I am, you know? And part of that was the African-American experience of like, if I can't trust you while I'm walking down the street, I'm definitely not going to let four of you in my house for myself, right? right. Um, and shout out what to the- What year was this? What year was that? Ooh, this would have been 2007, 2008, okay. you know? This was, so in, this in, was in Pennsylvania. This, this was in Harrisburg, yes. Central Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, okay. um, but now I've also had other experiences too, where, you know, I, one time I was going to Evangelical, I was going to seminary, um, and I was on my way to a night class. And I remember going on the back roads off of um, 81, and then there's those exit 10, whatever. I Some back road into Meyerstown, or every back road into Meyerstown, right? It's very windy, right? And I remember, like, I got this thought of, like, you're going to be okay. And I'm like, oh, cool, God, it's only night class. I don't understand, like, this strong feeling. And as soon as I had that thought, I slipped on some black ice, skidded out on that back road, hit a telephone pole. And I remember calling my insurance guy, who was a family friend, and I'm just like, 
he um i was gonna say his name i don't know if i'm allowed to say his name whatever i was like hey insurance guy um <laughs> jake from state farm yeah jake from <laughs> state farm uh, can you call the police for me because i'm in the middle of myers town in the middle of nowhere i'm a black guy like i just feel like you should make the first contact hmm. and he was just like oh hank it's not a big deal don't worry about it you should call them you that's normal protocol i was like i hear you on normal protocol but i need you to just explain to them what happened you know it was a nice, I don't know if they're playing Mennonite. Um, I always consider them playing Mennonite because, you know, Anabaptists got to stick together, you know? Yeah. Could have been Amish, but they were super nice to me. Give me cookies, you know, hang out. There was another guy who actually saw the whole accident and sat there and was just working in his car. And I didn't see him at the time. I was just like, it's a white guy. I don't know why he's looking at me. This is weird. But he just sat there and observed the whole thing, right? So I wait for an hour for the police to show up. We go through all the, the blah, blah, blah. And then he goes you know, where are you going? I was like, oh, evangelical, I have a class literally in 10 minutes, you know? Um, and he was just like, oh, okay, well, you know, Romans 12 and 13. Now I'm an Anabaptist, right? <laughs> so when you pull out Romans 12 to tell me the state um, can do whatever it wants to me, I fight back. Cause I'm like, I think Paul's writing to church leaders, yeah. you know, like Paul was not really an agent of the state. I don't think Paul really loved the Roman empire. So <laughs> I don't, I just think through personal experience, Paul's not being like, you know, they beat and tortured me and treated me like trash, but you guys need to submit to them. Like, I don't think that's what Paul's saying, but that's just me, right? Um, so he pulls that out, which already gets my, you know, like I'm shooting through the roof. And he's like, so I have to give you a ticket. And I'm like, but for what? Like, I mean, I, I get I hit the telephone pole. So I expected some kind of public destruction of property or whatever. Um, so what happened was I was facing oncoming traffic, which is not good. I slipped on black ice, which is also not good. And I, I basically was facing that traffic. So I pulled off to the side of the road. That's all I did, which is what I thought you were supposed to do, right? Pull off to the side of the road and um, <laughs> I waited for him for an hour, like I said, and the ticket he gave me was for fleeing the scene because he said I pulled off the side of the road and I should have left my car there. And my thinking was it's oncoming traffic, it's ice, and I can't keep my car in the middle of the road. So he gave me a ticket for fleeing the scene um, and it was in Lebanon County. So obviously I was going to fight this ticket and he puts the address down. Again, I have no reason not to trust the officer, not to trust the address. Um, if you know me, I'm late to everything, but I was going to fight this ticket. So I showed up to the courtroom um, 30 minutes early, go up and talk to the lady. And she's like, yeah, yeah, just sit down. Everything's good. Don't worry about it. Um, about two minutes, about 10 minutes before I see no, nothing happening in the courtroom, five minutes, nothing. Two minutes, I go up to her. She goes, oh, wait, let me see your ticket again. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to go into the, like, fight this ticket now. She goes, oh, no, 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 you're at the wrong um, court. The other one's across town, you know? And I'm just like, you couldn't have said this a half hour ago? And I was like, isn't this the address? She goes, yeah, but that's not the address the officer meant, right? Um, so now I have to run across town. I'm late to the hearing. The judge had left, you know? And I go and say like, you guys gave me the wrong address. And they're just like, oh, I'm sorry. You can reschedule it, but you have to pay. And you can still fight it, but like you basically have to pay this fine now. And if you win, you might have access to $60 before court fees. You know, and, and so again, it's, it's when I say um, I've adapted this black experience, like when we say the criminal justice system is unfair, you know, like there's people who face way worse than I face, but that's what I face as a pastor, you know, like I fled the scene and apparently blew off my hearing is what the like, and I got points on my license for this, all this stuff, right? So when, when you, when, 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 when everything started to break out with mm -hmm. Floyd in, yeah. in the summer, um, what were you feeling? What were you experiencing with that? Was this just 
Yeah, so I am, or... I am very um, Baldwinian in my politics. So James Baldwin has this great line, is like, I love America more than any other country in the world. That's why I insist on critiquing it, you know? And so that's kind of where I am, right? I feel like the words of America are pretty good. I just don't think America follows through with them. I think the laws of America, generally, I'd give them a nine or 10, but how it's fleshed out to the people, two or three for some of us, right? Mm. Um, whether you go back to Thomas Jefferson saying all men are created equal, but really only meaning rich white men who he liked, you know, like if you're black, not created equal, you're a woman, not created equal, Native American, not created equal, poor, not created equal, right? Um, so when George Floyd is happening, it's not the first one. The first one that really hit me was Amadou Diallo, early 90s. Um, here was a guy who was Sierra Leonean in New York City across the river from me, um, but also grew up in Liberia, you know, and he's killed by police, like on his front stoop, you know, and you can list all these names of people. So when George Floyd happened, I, what, what was shocking to me was the national uproar, because this is something Black people have been saying for not just tens of years, but hundreds of years, you know, we are people who are systematically lynched in the South without any kind of repercussions, right? Like we've been saying that authorities have been killing us and no one really listened. We even have video now and no one really listened. So for me with George Floyd, my sense of hopelessness wasn't in um, that George was killed. It was like, here it's happening again and there's nothing we can do to stop it. You know, and when I said I, I felt what my great grandfather or great great whatever number it is grandfather felt was I finally got to this place where I was just like, we're a multicultural church, we're intentionally doing racial justice, we've been talking about this forever. Um, and I'm just not seeing the progress because I can still get killed for just about anything, you know. So um, let, let me let me ask you this, Hank. You, yeah. Tell me, tell me how you frame this as an Anabaptist. I mean, so yeah. we you know, uh, PBS just ran this great uh, two two episodes. We figured that out. It's two, not three. We thought yep. there were four, but there's only two um, on the history of the Black Church. Uh, there's nothing in there on Anabaptist African Americans. To surprise, right. surprise. <laughs> uh, lots of stuff on Baptists, but not yep. the Anabaptist part. How how does how does say your Anabaptist theology? How do you frame some of this yep. as an Anabaptist versus maybe? Uh, you had said off screen that, you, you know, you grew you, you, as a kid, you were in a Pentecostal church, you could have been in a black Baptist church in Philly. Yeah. Um, how does the Anabaptism help frame this for you? Yeah, so the Anabaptism for me, when I went to Messiah, I was introduced to these people who um, I would say were the red letter Christians, right? So they looked at the Sermon on the Mount, and they said, that's the canon within the canon. Um, I didn't necessarily think I was all about them at the time. You know, it took me probably five years after my Messiah graduation. And part of why I became Anabaptist was I went to Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church. You know, I went there for a year before I was on staff and my now wife, I was sitting next to her and she was one of my friends who were just like, you got to come to this church. If you care about Jesus, if you care about loving your neighbor, and if you care about like multiculturalism and racial justice, this is your church. And I was like, first of all, like they have a white senior pastor who grew up in the South. Like, I just don't know how much they can really care about all these things you're saying they care about, right? Um, and God actually used him in that relationship to heal me. You know, before my wife, I had never dated a white person before. And the first white person I dated, I kind of grew up with and then faced racism from them, you know, like from her family. And this was, again, people who knew me, evangelical, white, quote unquote, good Christians. And the racism, I probably don't even feel comfortable seeing it on air that I faced, you know? So I wasn't just judging this guy. I was judging him based on my pain that I had gone through with someone who looked like him, right? 
Um, but as I started going to this church, I realized my very first Sunday, they had um, uh, two people come up front and they're like, you should join the Sunday school class. And the class was basically like, hey, Mark, you're white. Hey, Hank, you're black. Historically in America, that's mattered more than we're Christians and we love each other. So come tell your stories. I remember leaning over to my now wife and I was just like, wait, they want me to talk about how white Christians have ruined my life and how they hurt black people. Like, this is a class. This church is amazing, you know? Um, and, and so how my Anabaptism plays is that we look at our two kingdoms, like we don't separate it as much as people think we do. Like we believe Jesus, we believe intention, right? Is Jesus fully God or fully man? Yes. You know, does God predestine and do we have a choice? Yes. You know, we think a bunch of y'all just waste too much energy trying to answer these tension points that we can't, right? Um, but then the other that one hurts, is like, that hurts. That hurts. Yeah, I'm just saying, I'm just telling you, I just all think right, yes right, is the all answer. Right. Like, here's the other one. Has the And I think all of us, no matter our, our theological background, agrees on this one. Is the kingdom coming and is it here? Yes. You know, um, and so part of where my Anabaptism found a home was I started believing that what if God was serious in Genesis and how he created us? You know, what if Isaiah's revelation or Isaiah's dream in Isaiah chapter two with all the nations of the earth streaming to the city of the Lord is true? What if John's revelation is true? But then the one that got me was the Lord's prayer. Like Jesus prays for on earth as it is in heaven. Like that changed my life because I was like, oh, you know, we got to heaven. God's not going to be like, okay, reformers over there, Anabaptists over there, Baptists over there. Like we're all supposed to be together. But what if Jesus is serious about on earth as it is in heaven? So that informs not just my Anabaptism, but it makes me say that like, I don't just have to work for the kingdom that's coming. I have to say the kingdom is here today. And I think the best witness I can have in America is to be a multicultural church. And that's because America has been really bad at mm -hmm. diversity. Like the American church, and I would say the white American church has been really bad at loving our neighbors as ourselves. You know, like- Let me ask, I, let me ask Dan this question. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting. You and I keep talking about Kuiper yeah. uh, and, and every square inch, but it sounds to me, and, and maybe I'm hearing this wrong. Tell me it's, it's early. Uh, but is Hank kind of really just kind of giving us an Anabaptist Kuiperian response? Yeah, well, that's interesting because I think the other the other angle we're working on is a Niborian sort of Christian realism that mm. you know there are limitations, and that that may be easy to say when the limitations in our human society benefit me or make it easy for me to survive rather than others. And so, hearing you talk and saying, yeah, that that Niborian realism sounds like a nice idea, but at the same time, it's rather passive. You said, yeah, we can't we can't make too many changes. It's not realistic. But you're 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 saying that a Kuiperian view requires more social involvement in our communities to actually reveal and show this kingship of Christ in our communities rather than just theologically. And, and, and I want to go to something and Hank about and, and maybe you were headed in this way, Mark, before this idea of being Anabaptist, this two kingdoms view, because I think as reformers, we would agree with you ostensibly. Um, and then say, but but at the same time, we sort of see the two kingdoms of God sort of more related than you might see them, my city of man, city of God. But you're involved very deeply in your society. So you're not saying the city of man is unredeemable. You're not saying it's you need to actually work in this community to bring it in alignment with the kingdom of God. So how does that work with your the Anabaptist view of things? Well, I mean, part of it is we believe that heaven comes down, you know, like, mm -hmm. so the city of God actually has to come down. We believe that Jesus chose to enter into this time and space to teach us how to live and love, to please God, to, mm -hmm. to show us that, you know, he said the best representation of who God is, is how we love one another. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So for us, um, I would say for me, especially the work that we do isn't just separating the two kingdoms, but it's really trying to bring heaven down. I think all of us are tasked with that, you know? And, and so I understand the, the limitations that we all have, but I also feel like a lot of my generation, especially, and maybe even younger, we're really good at critiquing the church for everything it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I study scripture, it seems to me that all we have left is the church and the spirit, you know? Mm-hmm. And to me, the spirit is doing what the spirit is doing and yeah. what the spirit uh-huh. can do, but it's left to the church. So for me, whether or not you critique institutions, you can be Baldwinian on it and be like, you know, I, I love the church too much not to critique it. I get it. But I really feel like God desires to use all of us to bring change into this world. And I think the history of Christianity outside of Anabaptism or even the Reformed tradition is we are agents of change. Yeah. If you look at major movements in Western society, even it's been for by the church. So for me, the work that we do isn't just to make America better or this world better. It's to bring heaven down, you know. And I think if our people are living in hell and we're right. supposed to be the and we're supposed to be the light, um, I think Jesus has some pretty again. We're red letter people, right? Jesus has some pretty harsh words for people who don't like you either look like your father in heaven or you look like your father, the devil, you know, like Can we go back I, to something, Hank, for a second. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Cause, yeah, I, yeah. I, Cause I think you're making a good point that your, your statement about, you know, a Baldwinian. So let's be Baldwinian about the church for a second. So yeah. America, we love it. And that's why we have to criticize it, which I really yeah. appreciate that perspective. We love the church and now we're willing to criticize it. So exactly. Baldwinian about the church. Where has the church failed in your opinion? Well, I think, I, I'll speak to the, the American church, right? I think yeah, where please. we failed is that we chose capitalism over Jesus. You know, we chose ourselves over others. You know, we chose to make people property um, and for our benefit. And I think we consistently choose that. So for example, even to this day, I have a lot of people who love Jesus and they'll say, well, it's about the economy, stupid, you know? Mm-hmm. And to me, that doesn't sound very Christian to me. You know, maybe I sound too much like a Marxist or a socialist, but I just don't see that in the Bible where God- That was actually like, James Carville. So. Yeah, right? Yeah, Carville, yeah. Well, fair yeah. enough, fair enough, right? Yeah. But yeah, I just don't think that's the, the Jesus perspective on it, right? So I would say where we failed is when we see these things happening, we are not called to action like we should be called to action. You know, like we as Christians- are supposed to be a light that people see and they glorify our father in heaven. And we've become too, and maybe we're in central Pennsylvania, right? We've become so good at building up our own silos that like we're the world around us that's starving or the world around us that's hurting. We focus so much on me and mine instead of us being in this together. So where has the church failed us? I think the church has failed us because we haven't been the church. We have not chosen the way of Jesus more than the way of Jefferson. We have not chosen to love our brother and sister above all things, you know? And I think obviously we can all debate on what is love, but I think it's safe to say that America hasn't loved minorities, whether it's Native Americans, whether it's Black people, whether it's women, whether it's every single minority group that first comes to this country. Like you pick a minority group in this country, we found a way to oppress them and we call ourselves a Christian nation. So where have we failed? I think we failed, we just, Again, we might say that's too idealistic, but we have not loved the way Jesus loved. And I think that's the call for all of us. Let me ask this, Hank, to, to lean into this a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, you and I were actually talking about part of the documentary before with the, the famous uh, um, 
NT or uh, NT right. Jeremiah Wright. Yeah, yeah, Jeremiah yeah. Sermon that, that got Obama in all sorts of heat when, when yep. Jeremiah Wright said, God damn America about slavery in this country. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, and I think you and I said that he was getting heat probably too because of, mm -hmm. of the Christian nationalism that, that's baked into certain parts of culture. But one of the questions I wanted to ask is, how does your Anabaptism play mm -hmm. a role in how, so you, you've critiqued the church. Yeah. Um, and you're, you're critiquing, you're being Baldwinian and critiquing America at the same time. Yep. How does the church, once you've critiqued the church and you now start to, like you and I said, not just deconstruct it, but reconstruct some things. Tell us how your church is doing some of that reconstruction in the church and how you see your, the church changing culture right not yeah. making america great again but yeah. you know, bringing the kingdom down that 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 that's a different hat and yeah. so um how do you see that how, what, what do you see your church doing in that way yeah i think um it's as simple as building relationships and and loving one another i had a friend john brennan brenneman who was at Masai, um evangelical with me and while we were evangelical he lived in a rural town i lived in an urban town and we would go to lunch or something, you know, probably like once a month in all these different settings, suburban, rural, um, urban, you know, and every time we had this three year run, uh, every time we went out to eat, he's white, I'm black, doesn't matter where we were, someone would either come and just sit up to us and just start talking. Um, we had one lady one time, I think it was in Hershey, was just like, are you guys Christians? Or like, well, I mean, I guess we have to say yes. Like, this would be kind of awkward, right? And she's like, can you pray for me? And she just started talking, right? We mm -hmm. had another lady who was a waitress in Middletown who sat next to us and was just like, I just never see Black people and white people just talking. Like, this is amazing. Like, you guys look like your brothers, you know? And mm -hmm. we're just like, well, we are, you know? Um, so the core of where I'm getting at is that if I truly believe that Mark's my brother, you know, then how I interact not just how I vote, but my day-to-day -day is based on not what's best for me, but what's best for my brother. You know, like I am truly putting him before myself, right? So how our church is doing that is we really believe Jesus is serious about on earth as it is in heaven. We really believe that the best witness we can have is in a country that's been defined by race by 400 years, right? So a lot of sociologists will tell us and people who study race will tell us it's a social construct, right? I can understand the social and I think most of us get that, what we don't understand is the construct part. A construct means you built something. And if we're all in this house that's been constructed, we're all a product of it, whether or not we want to admit it or whether or not we see it, the house is still where we're in. And I think as a church, if we can stand up and truly love one another freely, fully, and live for one another, that's a witness that this country hasn't seen. Now, where I get hope is that I think God's forcing our hand on this. We're more diverse than we've ever been. You know, 30 years ago, you can live somewhere and be like, like I can live in Palisades Park and be like this one or two black families. Right. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, social media, internet for all its warts has brought us closer than ever before. Um, and then lastly, I would say that like God is forcing our hands because our families are more diverse. Our workplaces are more diverse. Every generation is getting more diverse, right? So how do we as a church respond to that? You know, everyone always quotes Dr. King, uh, Sunday morning being the most segregated time in America. Um, there's a Lifeway study a couple of years ago that said, oh, no, not only is that still true, most people still prefer it, you know? And to <laughs> me, that is a, um, uh, not just a criticism, but that's an accusation, right? Like, um, again, if you look at Jeremiah Wright's whole sermon, 
he's saying goddamn America and he's using the blessing and curses of the Old Testament. He's not just cussing the cuss. Like <laughs> you have a covenant in the Old Testament, right? Like I'm not going to say I'm an Old Testament scholar, but I am Dorsian in this, right? Like you have blessing and curses. You do what you're supposed to do, blessings. You don't do what you're supposed to do, cursing, damnations. Like that's what happens. And if America makes this covenant that they're not doing, there's a curse that comes, right? And I think this is some ways he's being very, almost very Puritan and that Jeremiah tradition. In, in yeah. That, in, uh, well, and I think that's part of the work for our church, right? Like we have to be prophets. Like we have to be committed to showing not only our world, there's another world possible, but claiming things, you know? So you, we mentioned this earlier, what I was feeling last year, what helped me get through the, the hardness of not just the pandemic, but the hardness of racial injustice. Cause I stopped watching these videos because it wasn't good for my blood pressure. And because literally seeing someone who looks like you killed and then just regurgitated on social media time and time again, it's completely debilitating, right? But what helped me get through was reading through the prophets. I read Micah for maybe the first time last year where I was like, oh my gosh, you be talking about America. Here's a country that has failed leadership in the, for our context, the church and in politics. Here's a country that's built in the backs of slavery and injustice. Here's a country where the rich are getting richer. And Micah's goddamn America speech is actually Micah 6 where God actually is the one who puts us on trial. And one of the things that really helped me is like, what if God puts us on trial as a church for what we haven't done when it comes to racial injustice, right? Now, what what, what's happening What's happening at your church? Uh, yeah. That, like, okay. So if our visitors were to, our listeners were to walk into your church, what are some things that are actually happening there that look different yeah. than what we would see at... Well, our makeup is different. So that's one of the first things that might be shocking. Um, we have a lot of kids who now go off to college and I used to be in youth ministry. So I, I've learned to let them figure this out, right? Because that's what that younger generation needs. Like you can't just give them the faith. You got to let them figure it out. And they'll go to churches for two or three weeks and they won't be able to put their finger on it. And maybe about two or three months in, I'll get another call and be like, I finally got it. Mm. I went to this church and everyone looks the same. And that's weird. Mm. You know, I went to this church and only men are on the upfront. That's weird. I went to this church and, you know, like the leadership all looks the same and that's weird, right? So one thing I think that's always striking is you, you see the difference, yeah? One of my best friends, his grandfather survived Auschwitz mm. um, and his mother was Jewish, obviously, but then she married a Jamaican Christian and then he grew up Messianic Jewish. So if you see him, he just looks like a light-skinned Black guy, right? I remember the first time he came to our church before we went to multiple services, he's just looking around and our church is not slick, you know, we're not like the fanciest, you know, we're just real right and i say that to like not just as like a badge of honor but just be prepared when you come to visit you know like something might go wrong you know like it's just church you know and i remember him just looking around so i was like oh man what did i miss what's going wrong you know it's my one of my best friends right it's my brother and finally he leans over to me he goes dude i'm like what he's like do y'all collect them i was like what are you talking about he goes he's like I just counted like 20 interracial couples and families. Like, are you just like putting a banner to collect them? And here's the irony of that statement. I'm in an interracial marriage. And I had never, that had never dawned upon me. Like I never sat down and talked about, oh, there's a lot of us here, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so when I say the look is different, that's important. But the other one is we believe in not just education on racial justice and injustice, but biblical teaching on it, you know? So for us, one of the things that you'll find different going to our classes is, we look at the New Testament, not as Jews and Gentiles, but as racial tensions. And we think a lot of the New Testament is actually dealing with racial tensions and societal tensions um, that we try to help flesh out and teaching people about. Um, yep. The other one is just in um, leadership and giving space. So when things like George Floyd happens, we think it's important to get the community together and say, how are you feeling? Mm. 
Mm. Found the power in story, you know, like a lot of people might never have heard Liberia, but if they heard, oh, you know, Henry or Hank has family who was killed in that country or Hank's dad was killed during the Civil War. Now, every time they hear Liberia, they have some kind of memory about Liberia and they think of me. Right. So we use story a lot to, to flesh out that what you're seeing happening on the national scene is not just, you know, this big thing, but it's affecting your brothers and sisters, you know? Mm. Um, so that's some of the things that we do. So it's all about like, what, not just what we look like, but how are we building family here? How are we celebrating one another here? Because that's another big thing that we do is we try to celebrate culture. So for us, it's not like a checklist. Oh, it's Black History Month. We have to do this, you know? I don't know when this will debut, but one of the things I'm doing this month is I'm only referring to Black uh, women and male theologians. And whether it's the stories I tell, the examples that I use, the quotes that I use, you know? So we don't necessarily go on like a high horse about it, but we do have this intentionality of celebrating. Uh, that, that's an interesting word you use. There's an intentionality. It's not just, so it's, <laughs> to go back to your friend's line, it's not that you're collecting interracial mm-hmm. couples that you've put out a flyer, but you've created uh, a safe space yeah, where this can be, and is it is it? Are you finding you're just you're you're drawing people to this mm-hmm. who maybe they are Baldwinian. They they've been in some of the churches. They've seen this and say, like, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah, we're drawing a lot of those, right? And so I I'm gonna talk about the good part about that. The negative of that are people who are just done with church. Is that we then have to deal with um, that trauma that they haven't dealt with. Mm. You know, we then have to deal with you know the lack of trust in the institution that they still have, right? So our church, for example, transitioned from the, my, my mentor, this older white guy grew up in the South to me, right? That was a huge transition for us, not just because it was white, black, young, old, but for example, he can get up in the pulpit and say, white supremacy is a sin and the church has been culpable. And 99% of our people will be like, he's right. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. You know, I get up and say the same thing. And we might not have 99, it might drop to 95, right? Yeah. But if you have 400 people in a service, you know, that 5%, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, like it's different, right? So I think that like, that's the negative side of it is that a lot of people's um, lack of trust in the institution, hurt by the institution, we have to hold that, right? But the positive of it is that like, we can dream of the impossible. We can dream of building this world so in our city you know when we first started we do a lot of outreach and honestly when we did it we did it from the evangelical thing it's like we will serve the community and people come to church right god has really kind of um grown us into this area it's like no 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 no. you will serve the city because i called you to be a light here you know Mm -hmm. you will serve the city because there's a need here that you can help fill like ain't about filling the seats it's about loving this community not a carrot and a stick Exactly. So even that shift in focus was something we had to learn, right? So when we first started, we're like, we're in, oh, so this is the other thing I think is important about our church. We used to be an all-white church in the heart of the city. And when I say heart of the city, we were in a neighborhood that had row houses. So yeah. you picture a church on the corner, 40 houses attached on one side, 50, and then 50 all around us of a neighborhood that was predominantly um, African-American and Black, increasingly Black and Latino, and the church was all white. So we first started this path. We said, okay, God, obviously we're not reaching this community. So like help us learn how we have to leave, you know, like do we have to get in or get out? Right. And that started uh, 20 years of intentionality, right? Intentionality and changing our worship, changing our leadership, changing our mission and vision, 
learning how to serve the community. But what's even more beautiful than that 20 years of intentionality are the women and men, especially women who prayed for that for us for 50 years. You know, so I'm still hearing stories of people who are just like, we're an all white church not reading this neighborhood. God help us, God help us, God help us. So yeah, intentionality is a big thing. Yeah. Um, modeling is a big thing. But then at the end of the day, trying to actually look like Jesus, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of our churches are trying to look at, you know, and this sounds very critical, but we're trying to look like other churches or other successful churches, you know? Yeah. For us, it's a messy water, you know? So for example, you, we talked a lot about my anabaptism, you know, where one of my, one of the places my anabaptism shows up is in life issues, right? So a lot of church will be like, yeah, we're pro-life and it comes off as like anti-abortion, right? Yeah. But we are actually womb to tomb. Which doesn't make us friends with anyone, <laughs> you know, like, right, 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 right. It doesn't make us friends with anyone because we will critique abortion, yes, but we also say, well, why are people getting abortions, right? So we'll critique life, healthcare, education, um, and then other life issues like war. We will never support a war, you know, we will never support capital punishment. So we in some cases, you're, you're, you're critiquing, say, on the abortion issue, you're mm -hmm. critiquing systemic issues that might exactly. kind of create people thinking that's the, the only way out. Well, we critique um, the systemic issues, but we also critique the fact that, you know, we think God calls us to bring life, mm. you know, and we think that fighting for life should not only care about what happens in the womb or before the womb. We should care about what happens when the baby's born. We should care about our sons and daughters that we send off to war. I mean, I think I read something that like, there's only been less than 20 years, maybe 15 years that America hasn't actively been at war. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, right. No, you're right. You're right. It's probably between World War One and World War Two. Yeah, I actually yeah. had a list on my computer one time. So I, I quoted in a sermon and someone's like, that's not true. So I, I literally made a chart. Oh, I found a chart on Google. <laughs> well, Hank, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Uh, we've, we've been going at it for uh, a good 45 minutes, 50 minutes. Um, yeah. But I think it's helpful to get this different perspective on this. It's what Dan and I have been trying to uh, de develop and, and realizing the, the church universal is much bigger than just our own group. Um, and we can hear, we need to hear from other group, other traditions, other believers from other cultures, other countries. So I want to thank you again. Yeah. Thank that. you all for having me. Yeah. Um, just in closing, Andrew Walls has this great analogy um, talking about how on the stage is a Jesus play. You know, and depending on our seat in the theater, we all have a different view. So some of us might be close, so we don't see the big picture, but we hear things clearly. Some yeah. of us might be further back, so we see the big picture, but we don't hear anything. So I think that's another facet of being the body of Christ, right? Mm -hmm. like we need each other. Um, and so I always talk about this practically. You know, I, I thought I was really smart. And I was like, yo, this is like a stub toe. You know, when you stub your toe, you don't go, man, 99.7% of my body's great. You know, yeah, like right, right, your entire right. focus goes to that hurt area. Like that's mm. what your entire focus goes to. And I have a friend who's much smarter than me, who's also a medical doctor and was like, you know, Hank, you know, the beautiful thing about swelling. I was like, no, actually I do not. There's nothing beautiful about swelling. It looks disgusting and blah, blah, blah. He goes, okay, just breathe, you know? But the beautiful thing about swelling is that it's the body's natural reaction to protecting the hurt area. Right. And that change and revolutionized everything for me because not only should our natural reaction be to help the marginalized, the oppressed, the hurting, um, but that should be what our natural reaction is. Like it shouldn't be this like, oh, I guess I gotta do this or do I have to do this? Um, and I think if you really look at the Pauline epistles, right? Like what does it mean that we're members of one another? 
Yeah. Because just like my toe is a member of this body, all these perspectives not only matter, but we need them to get a fuller picture, you know? And so for me, that's the joy of, I used to grow up hating all the denominations, but I've learned that like Jesus seems to be okay with it. You know, like if you need to believe that I picked you from the beginning of time to, to follow me, that's great. If you need to believe it's only your choice, that's also great. If you need to believe that America is the greatest thing in the world, I might critique that. But as long as you think I'm greater than America, I might let you slide in, right? Um, if you think America is the worst thing in the world, but I got you here, I might critique that. But I still think if you think I'm better and I can make a change as bad as America is, I'll still let you in. So well, I think you, you, you said something really interesting there. You hmm. said that um, when you stub your toe, 99% mm -hmm. of your body's fine, but you're mm -hmm. focused on this. Um, and it's, it's I, I think maybe part of the problem is part of the problem in the, in the racial divide in the church is for African-Americans uh, it's not just a stub toe. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's much more of their part of their body and, 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 but, but for other groups in the culture, mm -hmm. they're not, they don't have a stub toe. They don't even have a stub toe. So they're yeah. like, well, I, 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 I can't even see where this pain is. I, I, I don't understand. Yeah, it. They don't have a stub toe. And then one group has like a recurring back injury or recurring serious yeah, long-term yeah. long illness, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I had um, a neighbor when I was younger who had lupus. I knew nothing about lupus, nothing. Yeah. I mean, I was like a nine-year-old kid, so I get it. But it was like, I knew nothing about it. But seeing how she suffered, seeing how her day-to-day -day was so hard, mm -hmm. so hard, like mm -hmm. just to like get up and put clothes on and go outside was a huge victory for her, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, and looking back now, like that revolutionized how I thought about life, right. you know, because as a kid, you don't think about any of this stuff, but seeing how she suffered. So yes, yeah, so I think you're right. Like that's, but, but I would, I guess my only pushback on that too, though, is that like when we have eyes to see, you know, we will see, you know, so for example, you're wearing glasses right now, right? Yeah. You and I go to the mall, you will notice every single person wearing those glasses. I will not. Right. Know, my first car right. was a blue Toyota. I still see blue Toyotas on the right. road. And right. I'm sure they existed before I got one, but it's yeah. like, I still see them all the time. So I do think part of the work is, yeah, we might think we're fine or we might be in chronic illness, but God has literally designed us and created us to not care until we care. You know, so I think that's why it's important to tell stories. That's why it's important to have these conversations. That's no. why it's important to walk alongside of us because I honestly might never care about, you know, um, like what's happening right now in Tigray, you know, which is like something I'm learning about now. But I have someone who I'm connected to who's from that region. And when they're telling me about the atrocities happening, all of a sudden I'm on Google. I'm looking at like mm -hmm. every news resource to try to find out. So I think that's part of the work of the church, right? Like we have to not only tell each other stories, but remember that we're supposed to be members of one another. Remember mm. that when you hurt, I'm supposed to be hurting. Mm. And to remember that like, we are all have to learn how to make people care. And the yeah. best way to do that is to tell our stories and to share, you know? Well, that's the mic drop, pal. That's okay, good. Okay, we'll that's take good. it. Thank you. Thank you uh, so thank much. Thank you so much. This was great. I Thank you for spending time with us and listening to this podcast. We hope that it has helped you negotiate living in the city of man. Be sure to check out our website, unlikelypilgrims.com, where you can find blogs, book recommendations, podcasts, and vlogs. You can also check us out at Facebook at unlikelypilgrims.com. You can follow us on Twitter at 
unlikely pilgrims at the city of God. 